Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder and special guest Steve Van Meter. But today's show is all about me. Instead of doing the interview, I'll be doing the presenting. So things will be upside down, inside out. We'll see how it goes. It's obviously a terrible idea, but audience, don't run away. I'm going to present to you, I'm going to name names, countries that are most likely to suffer a systemic banking crisis or some sort of financial crisis in Europe. As you know, Europe is heading into something awful, some sort of emergency, an emergency, a energy emergency, a life affordability, cost of living emergency, energy emergency. People are very concerned. You can hear about it. You can read some of the stories already in the news. Sweden saying that they're going to be bailing out their energy industry. Other countries announcing similar measures. And I'm going to present to these two gentlemen here what the Bank of International Settlements thinks of all this in the best possible light. So basically, the Bank of International Settlements, every quarter, they do a review of the banking system and private credit all around the world on a national basis. And then they say, well, it looks like relative to your national trend, dear country, you have just the right amount of debt, too much debt, your debt servicing costs are too high, etc. There are five different measures. I'll introduce them. We'll go through them. I'll explain them. And then the BIS has found that if you have too much of a good thing, too much sugar, too much credit, if your asset prices are experiencing a runaway relative to your historic trend, well, they found that statistically there's a 50-50 chance of some sort of crisis taking place in your country within the next three years. Steve, what do you think of that? That's pretty good. Pretty good odds. 50-50 chance within the next three years years if you trip one of these BIS early warning indicators. Gentlemen, any thoughts, any guesses as to which countries I'm going to name? Most of them. (laughs) You would think, you would think it's most of them, but let me offer this particular hint. It's not public debt. That is the concern. Public debt, it turns out, can be serviced because the government can print the money and or tax people and or commandeer assets. So public debt, markets are not too troubled by, but it's the private debt, the households and the corporations that are having a lot of trouble when it comes to counterfeiting money, national money to be able to pay for their, for their dues. So it's the private debt that the BIS has found that it leads to systemic banking crises. If there's too much relative to trend, and believe it or not, it's not most of them, Steve. It's not most of them. But any guesses? Well, Emil, public debt. Yes, sir. Sorry, public debt is, is money, and especially in some of the major economies or major economies like major systems like Europe. You know, we talked about before that there isn't enough public debt, at least enough some public, like Germans. The Germans don't spend enough. and It ends up becoming a monetary restraint. So I'm wondering, you know, in my mind, the wheel's turning toward, are we going to hear about Italy enough? Because Italy is the primary monetary restraint currently. Italian public debt, which there may be too much of that one and not enough German. So if Italy's on our list, I'd be really concerned about how that impacts in the monetary system more than the banking system. 
Well, and you have to factor that public debt must be a problem because why are public rates or, or why are rates on government debt in Europe skyrocketing? I mean, if, if people didn't care about it, then naturally rates would stay probably whatever level they were before. But right now it's telling me that the, the public has no confidence in the government's ability to repay. I would push back and say that the rates are moving up because the central banks are pushing up a short-term rates. And the markets don't know when this madness is going to stop by central bankers. So I believe that's why rates are being pushed up. Not so much because uh, they're worried about the solvency of these national systems. But maybe I'm wrong because look at the euro. I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, the euro is falling away quickly. Maybe people are worried. Like a true central banker. Yeah. Right. Well, isn't that why the ECB is raising rates right now? Is because the euro's falling? I'm, I'm sure oh, Jeff, no. you completely agree with that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think people want to believe that's the case. And I, you know, I think, Emil, you're right. But again, I think this is why, you know, your presentation is helpful here is because we're, we think of these things as monoliths, right? It's one thing. There's a European sovereign debt market, but it's really not the case. There's, there's the German market, there's the Italian market. And right now, the German market is, is what Steve said, you know, or what Emil said, sorry. You know, German rates are rising because the ECB is pushing them up. Italian rates are rising more like what Steve said, which is Italian rates are rising because the ECB is pushing up German rates. But also the spreads of Italian over German are rising precipitously, which says there's something else going on here. So if we have some way, and I think, Emil, you have a way for us to take some of these European government bond markets apart and look at them not as a singular whole, but as, hey, this part looks good, this part does not look good. Maybe this explains why the spreads are going, because it's not necessarily about the public debt. I think that's extremely helpful. Jeff, earlier you mentioned Italy, and it turns out that Italy does not really show up on these measures of private debt. They show up on one measure in one quarter in the last 10 quarters, and that is the cross-border bank claims measure. So the BIS says, if there's too much foreign debt coming into your country, foreign denominated debt that you have to repay, well, it may fund some worthy projects at first, but eventually if there's too much over a short enough time period relative to your economy, surely that means it's funding things that are unproductive, uneconomic, and that will possibly lead to a crisis of, of some kind. Anyways, that's foreign debt, foreign debt. Yeah, but Mila, I think the, the issue there is, is also is currency mismatch. If you've got foreign, uh, foreign entities, foreign, uh, foreign lenders lending in a foreign currency to your economy, usually U.S. dollars, what usually happens is you run out of the other people's currency to pay the debt back, even if you're solvent. Um, it's essentially the currency crisis that I think we're seeing in many, many places around the world, not just Europe, but, you know, I'm thinking about India, China, all across Asia, Africa, some Latin American nations that are running through the reserves. It's you have U.S. dollar denominated debt that can't be serviced in U.S. dollars if you don't have the U.S. dollars. Absolutely. And while that is important or worthy measure, the statisticians at the BIS eventually settled on something called cross-border claims, which is similar but because they found it was more predictive of banking crises than just foreign denominated debt. So they set aside foreign denominated debt. That's something we're all familiar with. Cross-border claims is just banks 
lending into another country, both to banks and non-bank entities, but it's the same concept, money from abroad coming into your country, flushing it out, and then eventually funding things that are not economic. And Italy came up in one particular quarter in the last 10 quarters, I guess. But there are other countries that came up much more frequently, and I'm going to read them out, ladies and gentlemen. Are there any European ones? Uh, let's see. Let me see if I can find them. I can't find them off the top of my head, but let me just read them from the top of the list. Korea, Qatar, Rwanda, Macau, Bahrain, Burundi, Israel, Montenegro, Argentina, Nigeria, Italy, and Samoa. Korea is the one that's going to come up often. So that one, nah, not too many European countries. Now, there's a few of here that did show up, but I, I struck them off. I struck them off because they only appeared during the COVID crisis. So this measure is relative to your GDP. And during the COVID crisis, GDP crashed terribly. So was it really that there was too much money coming in or was it just that GDP, the denominator, fell off? I say that's what it was because if you take a look at where they are today, as of December 2021 or March 2022, that's the latest available data. Uh, they, these countries that came up on this list, like Spain, for example, did, it was all just, it peaked during the COVID quarters. Afterwards, it fell back. The United States, one quarter, again, just because of the COVID crisis. Slovak Republic. Okay, not as exciting as some of the other measures. I'm going to read them out to you guys. Uh, let's see, what's the one that's very exciting? Asset price appreciation, specifically residential property. The BIS says if residential property prices, real residential property prices accelerate faster than your 20-year trend, that means you have a bubble and it's going to spread throughout the economy. So it's not so much our prices crazy. They're crazy in Canada. They're crazy in Australia. But is it crazier than ever? That's what the BIS is after. And here are the countries that did come up on the list. This is very interesting. In the most recent quarter, March 2021, for the very first time, Canada appeared. Australia appeared for the very first time. The United States appeared for the very first time. Fascinating. Turkey, Russia, are they really in Europe? You can't tell European history without mentioning them, but I don't think they're considered European. Turkey's already had its financial crisis. So has Russia. The Czech Republic is on here. Slovenia, Greece, Portugal, Croatia, Poland, and Lithuania. I put all of those in the yellow warning bucket because it seems like it was COVID related. And then since then, it's come off the boil. But the Czech Republic one does stand out. And it's somewhat, somewhat interesting because the residential property price indicator in the Czech Republic, then dominoed into several other measures for the Czech Republic as well. Uh, I can't say Czech Republic. Czechoslovakia, I'd like to say. No. Uh, Cross-border well, You're not claims. allowed to say that. that that's, that's I know. I'm completely out. Total debt service. So there's two more ratios that they triggered because they had a residential property price boom. And Jeff, I know you've been writing this week about that article in the Wall Street Journal about the dollar rampaging across emerging economies and developed markets. And one of the countries that they mentioned 
as being very low on foreign reserves is the Czech Republic's, and this is, and so, you know, warning, warning, what's going to happen in the Czech Republic, completely separate measure, three different measures regarding asset prices and debt also identify the Czech Republic as a country that's warning, concern. Yeah, but I think that's, you know, we're we're putting these things together, right? If the Czech Republic is losing its foreign reserves because it's it's experiencing quote unquote capital outflows, it's likely because maybe the uh, the investment community, the euro dollar community doesn't follow the BIS numbers very closely, but they understand what the BIS numbers represent, which is a system that had gotten way out of whack. And I think what you're telling us, Emil, is that the Czech Republic, among maybe most of the countries in Europe, is probably the farthest to the right hand tail of the spectrum, which is where you don't want to be. And if we're seeing outflows and reserves disappear from the Czech Republic, it kind of makes sense why that's going on is because in a, uh, a constrained environment, the first thing you do is get out of the most risky assets that you're, you're invested in. So if the BIS is telling us the Czech Republic or what was the other? I mean, Israel came up. Um, what was the other one? Um, Nigeria, Slovenia. I think. Yeah. Slovenia. Wait, uh, for residential property prices or just any of the cross? Yeah, that's part of that. I mean, that's. I think that's the one most people would 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 visibly they understand you know property bubbles that kind of a thing. The Nigeria one was also in that Wall Street Journal article, Jeff, as a country that is losing U.S. dollar reserves or just advanced economy currency reserves, and came up on this separate, completely unrelated measure of there's too much debt coming into your country. Warning. You may be at risk of a financial crisis. So they're and that's, getting you know, at it. And that's the other part of this too, Emil, right, is oil. Because Nigeria is a huge mm. oil exporter, which you would think they would be doing really well dollar-wise as well as financial-wise, yet they're experiencing massive outflows because I think that the system, the monetary system, the market is looking down the road past oil prices to maybe oil prices crashing again, falling again. And what happened the last time oil prices fell sharply? little over half a decade ago, massive currency crisis, financial disruptions across these emerging markets. So, and I think that's, you know, what's interesting now is in the post-COVID world, I think we have a much weaker economic and financial system than people realize. And that view applies not just to the Nigerias of the world or emerging markets, but also some of these European and, and major economies like Canada. You know, how strong is the Canadian system? Canadians, if you talk to any Canadians, they've been talking about their real estate bubble for quite some time. And it's just been on and on and on. They talk about Chinese money, all this other stuff. You know, in the wake of the COVID crisis and wake of the COVID shutdown and recession, you know, how much can the Canadian system withstand all of these negative pressures before something really starts to go wrong? Well, and asset prices aren't really a a problem. You can have a bubble. I mean, that's not an issue. I mean, the question is, can people keep making up those payments? And, you know, what happened, you know, 2018, the global economy was slowing down. I know, Jeff, you were on top of that, like before anyone saw it coming. And you start to wonder is, okay, it doesn't matter how much my home's gone up or whatever, you know, even if it's my baseball cards. The question is, did I borrow against that asset? And can I continue to make those payments? And then maybe it was just dumb luck of timing of the monetary system and the pandemic. But if it wasn't for this flood of fiscal stimulus and suppressed interest rates, these bubbles probably would have burst, but now they're even bigger at a time where what do we see? Fiscal and monetary policy are being yanked out of the system as fast as maybe they ever have. 
And then everyone's sitting there saying, ah, oh, don't worry. The house price will stay up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck The economy's really strong. Don't worry about it. It's, it's really good out there. Well, that's what I heard from Janet Yellen. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody. across. I mean, the Europeans, they talk, hey, we need to raise rates aggressively because the economy is too good. Everything is going so well. We got to put the brakes on. Canada is not in Europe, but it is the Europe of North America. So it does qualify for a discussion here in Canada. Jeff, you're right to mention it. Steve, you're right to mention the can we afford to keep paying it. Canada comes in second out of all the countries on this list behind South Korea as triggering the most number of these BIS early warning indicators. They just triggered their residential property price bubble. So they, they find it's finally gone even nuts, nutser than the Canadians are used to. Nutser. Cross border claims, meaning there's too much money from abroad coming in. I don't know. I don't want to penalize them. It may be unfair to penalize them because they're an advanced economy. And so maybe this, this money is capital flight from abroad coming into the country. But they triggered it. You know, the BIS doesn't say, well, if it's an advanced economy, we don't have to count it. Well, you know, but they did trigger it. You know what it is? I, Emil, I think with Canada, that would be resource sales, right? Selling petroleum and all sorts of resources abroad, getting U.S. dollars, not Canadian dollars, or maybe euros or some other major currency. And so they're at risk of a commodity crash, like something like Australia would experience, where suddenly... Prices of those commodities, as well as demand, therefore volume of those commodities goes down. And suddenly Canada's lost a source of income, for lack of a better term, in a different currency to support its massive financial imbalances. So that's a very real risk, especially, I mean, any of the uh, Asian tigers during the 1990s could tell you the, the, what happens when that starts to go wrong. Is that, uh, you, you know, yeah, it's Canada, it's a major economy, um, but there's some massive financial imbalances there, as you're saying. There's behind South Korea. What was what is going on in South Korea? That's what we got to figure out too. But you know, the the commodity space resources those start to look soft as they have, and that's the other part of this too, right, Emil? These are older numbers. These are not you know August and September, right? These are from back in March. So back when December and things March. really started to go south. This is the best possible picture you could imagine. December 2021, March 2022, before the invasion, before the commodity price spike, before economies really began to accelerate downwards. Best possible look. These countries were already on their back foot. Korea, I don't, we don't have time, but they have triggered every single indicator. There's no explanation. There's no give here saying, oh, it was just because of COVID. No, they are accelerating. They're, these indicators are accelerating. They're worse and worse and worse. It looks awful. For Canada, a couple of points. They, their credit gap, meaning they have too much debt, too fast relative to the long run trend. That did happen. It all happened during the COVID crisis. So maybe we can write that off. Total debt service. Steve, that's what you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, my house is worth a lot, but can I pay for it? Well, according to this BIS early warning indicator, the private economy is paying more than ever, more than their 20-year trend, more than they're used to. And that is a warning. That is a three-year countdown, 50-50 chance. They're saying maybe, maybe we could say that is all related to COVID because it's, it's coming, it peaked and it's coming down. 
But the household debt service ratio, that one is not COVID related. That one has gone off and is in the danger zone and it's, it's not COVID related. It's still elevated two years after the fact. So Canada, I would say, I would put number two on this list behind South Korea as a country that is in some sort of credit trouble heading into this downturn. Let me give you guys the European names. We haven't mentioned it once yet. France. Yeah, that's an important country in Europe, but they have a credit gap problem, meaning that they're, the amount of private debt they have been taking on relative to their economy has been accelerating beyond anything they've been used to before. And total debt service ratio. So how much can their private economy bear to service and amortize the debt? It's going off the chart. Both the households, the households are just short of triggering the, the early warning indicator. I'm sure they will in the coming quarters. But if you combine households and corporations, that's gone off. Sweden. Sweden, I was on Real Vision recently and I was doing an interview and with, oh my God, who is the, who is the, the famous Dane that's doing all the interviews? Uh, Steno? No, my God. Andreas. Andreas. And I asked him, what is going on with your neighbors? And he said that there is a tremendous amount of mortgage debt in the household sector in Sweden. And it comes up. We know everybody was told they had to buy real estate to shelter from uh, currency collapses. So that was sort of a uh, universal phenomenon. Well, and people wanted to. Right. Because money printer goes burr. So what are you going (laughs) to do? Buy gold, crypto and real estate. And everybody did. And it's amazing how distortive that was. It's funny, it's, it's, it's self-reinforcing too, because the more people buy real estate, the higher the prices go, the more it looks like, oh, you better protect yourself from inflation. And this comes back to that debt issue, right? Again, you know, Emil, you keep mentioning all, you know, all this mounting debt and people say, well, it, particularly the Fed, you can get, you know, we just want to slow the economy down a little bit. And, and that's fine. You, know, you can tap the brakes. But the problem is if you have a massive amount of debt sitting on your private sector, and I think this is where you're trying to go, Emil, that even the slightest pullback can affect, negatively affect some, some groups. And next thing you know, delinquencies, defaults, and the whole thing spirals out of control. France, Switzerland, the Czech Republic, Russia, and Turkey. Russia and Turkey have already had their financial crises. Switzerland, maybe we can excuse them because they're an advanced economy money center and they had more debt than is actually being serviced by their national economy. Uh, My thesis is basically these countries are on their back foot. They're going into a crisis. The governments are going to have to bail out the private sector. I don't know if they're going to. They may want to. They may need to if they want to be reelected, presumably. And that is going to lead to perhaps more strenuous measures than that we've uh, seen before. I don't know if it's just going to be QE and the central bankers. I think the politicians may get involved. We may see what we saw during the Asian financial crisis, Jeff, capital controls. I know, crazy in an advanced economy, but we've seen it in Europe, Iceland, Cyprus, Greece. The IMF is in favor of capital controls. We're heading into an emergency. I'm sure they'll say it's patriotic. You're taking your money out of this country. That's unpatriotic in this energy emergency that we're facing. So it's possible we are at the end of the beginning, the end of the QE era, at least in Europe, where now politicians will 
move the central bankers over and they say, you guys are ineffective. We need to take over. We need to commandeer the economy and save everything. And it could include drastic measures such as capital controls. And maybe that's why we see the euro falling so precipitously. Maybe money is running away. Big, that's big picture stuff. Big, big picture. Uh, any thoughts do you guys have? Well, you know, too, you know, there's something else to hear, Emil, and that's that, you know, many governments, economies, uh, official sectors, politicians have decided that they did too much in the COVID crisis. That's right. That's that's where this inflation potentially came from. So one of the things that's going to happen is as the economy starts to fall off, even precipitously, governments are going to be very gun shy about printing more money and things like that. So it may be that you're right. They're going to be more likely to search for alternatives because they don't want to, at least in their view, in their telling of what has happened, to exacerbate or appear to be exacerbating what they say is an inflationary problem. So maybe that, no, we don't get another European QE because consumer prices haven't fallen by that point all that much from their peak, given all the structural issues on the supply side, the geopolitics, rush, all that stuff. So maybe consumer prices because of oil or whatnot continues to be a problem. And the European government decides we can't do QE. We've got to do something else to save the euro. What does Mario Draghi have in his bag of tricks this time? Of course, it won't work just like it didn't work last time. But you're right. They have to explore new avenues for trying to keep the thing somewhat together for as long as they possibly can. That's the key. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. New avenues are potentially on the near horizon, including drastic ones, which we thought we would never see in an advanced economy. We thought we'd never see QE. <laughs> I mean, go back. You know, it wasn't all that long ago where the Japanese were experimenting with QE and everybody said, ah, that'll never happen here. That'll never go on here. And then what happened? Boom, there it was. So... You know, as long as these things go and, you know, what I think the overall point here is that the BIS data tells you that nothing is fixed. There's still really big problems. And the big underlying problem is that the economies don't grow. They don't recover. And so we have too much debt relative to these unrecovered economies. And as Steve said, the slightest little breeze knocks it down. The next thing you know, what you thought was at least somewhat stable becomes completely unstable and oh, by the way, if you look around the world, I mean, as Emil, as you said, this is old data. You look around the world, you're starting to see massive capital outflows, quote unquote, all around the world, including Europe. There's a reason the euro was down as low as it is, is that people are getting very nervous about the moving forward here. Yes, some of it's about the European winter. What's that going to look like? But it's not just Europe. It's, you know, the Korean won. Is that, a, I think, a record low, if I'm not mistaken? Um, it's the Indian, yes. We're talking about the India's rupee, which was at a record low, but is now being pegged by the Reserve Bank of India, soft pegged by the Reserve Bank of India, because they're experiencing outflows, even though their economy is growing at a 14% rate. So there's something going, something is going on out there. And it's it has to do with the fact that we have an incredibly fragile situation, not a robust and resilient one, as we keep being told. Steve, any final cheery, happy thoughts? Yeah, I think what we're talking about here is if you're driving 20 miles an hour and you let off the gas a little bit, you, you don't really notice the change. But with all the fiscal and monetary stimulus from the pandemic, the economy was running at 120 miles an hour. And I guarantee you, you pull up 120 and let off the gas a bit, you'll know. 
And that's what we're talking about here. Too much debt, economy slowing a little bit. And, you know, we'll be lucky if we get out of this only with some minor scratches. But I have a hunch something worse is coming and the Fed knows it. We, we're hearing that from Powell. They, they know. But, hey, it'll be all right. Great, great. I'm glad it'll be all right. Wonderful. All <laughs> right. Well, says, thank you guys. That sounded like a prediction to me. <laughs> Steve well, says it'll yes, be all right. That's because Jeff texted me that. <laughs> all predictions are from Jeff. I have, I have no prediction for you. More than 80% will, there'll be an 80% survival rate. That's not bad. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to me. Unless you're one of the 20%. <laughs> yeah. 